When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I wanted to congratulate you. Before we even get started, I was scrolling through Twitter and I see that your book, which I know has been consuming you, you've been pouring yourself into it for months and months and months. It's, yeah. it's now this... Almost, all you can almost touch it. It's there. Uh, you can pre-order it. I can see the cover. I can see the quote. It looks fantastic. The design's amazing. Th- there was one thing though. It's all, it's almost written as well. Actually, <laughs> I really zoomed in very carefully on on the cover, and I thought you might have wanted some kind of endorsement from me on there. And I I, I can't see it. The the request is actually in the post. Did it not arrive? <laughs> I've I've got the uh, perfect quote for your cover. Go on. This is the ninth message I've left you. Why aren't you returning my calls, <laughs> Jeff Lloyd? That's good. Well, anyway, I'm encouraging people to pre-order it in a sort of slightly bashful way. Um, you shouldn't be. You should be proud. You've of- read it and given it your sort of private endorsement to me. And I, actually, of all the comments I've had, yours were incredibly helpful. Um, not not that I'm disparaging any other comments I've had, but your comments were, as you know, were incredibly helpful and sort of prompted a sort of quite important set of rewrites just for the people who listen to the podcast because i think a lot of people are going to like this book but i think if you listen to this podcast having read it i'm so excited because it's what we do here in terms of collecting ideas and people from all over the world who've got like really exciting ideas to fix things but the way that you frame it and the way that you bring these ideas to life what you're doing is almost giving people the the recipe or the ingredients to cook up a better world i think people who listen to the podcast are going to really love this book well that's really nice you know in a sense it's trying to it was obviously planned before covid but i think as we recover from covid i think we have such a an obligation to try and not just to go back to where we were um obviously we all want to return to normal life in one way but but you know if ever there was a moment to to build something different and something something better it is now and and to do that you've got to think big and that's really what the book is about yeah i think i think it looks great i'm disappointed that uh the the cover isn't you in your cold water swimming gear stripped to the waist they're pictures inside actually (laughs) it's a pull-out poster that people can pull out and put on their walls. And vintage books are the publishers and i know that you can pre-order it through those and uh bookshop of your choice I guess. And we'll, we'll post a link in the um, show notes. Now, let me ask you a question. Go on. There's a rat in my kitchen. What am I going to do? Is that true? Well, it's actually a mouse. And I do find myself oh. in a bit of a dilemma 
we've got mice, but being vegetarian, I'm, I'm extremely squeamish about pest control and, yeah. and killing mice. Uh, I've tried Have you in seen the, the mouse. Well, here's the thing. We've lived with what we believe to be a mouse for some time. Occasionally of an evening, if we're watching telly, a mouse would run across the kitchen floor. It would never get into the food cupboard. You'd never find dropping. I think it was probably just on its way from uh, a neighbor's house yeah. to another neighbor's house that's got more interesting food than we have. But now I just hear them all the time. There was one up here in the attic the other day. I went into the kitchen and one was running across the top of a pizza box. And I wondered if anybody has come across a way of dealing with this that is more effective than those little seesaw plastic traps because I, I don't know. I, I don't know so what to do. So you're crowdsourcing a humane, humane way I of... I don't of- think... That- the bog standard humane mouse traps are that effective, but I do think it's something people think about more and more and more. And there must be a vegan pest controller. There are vegan builders. This is like you're you're being a cheerful fellow this yeah, week. Yeah, this is this you, is like yeah, this is this is my equivalent. This is like my you. running, which has sort of gone downhill a little bit. Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. Well, this week it's a it's it's a really interesting episode. We're talking about the future of workplaces. Over the last twelve months, many though far from all workers have worked remotely for the first time. We're asking whether this will lead to a long-term shift in how people go about their jobs. First, we're talking to friend of the pod, Nick Bloom, an economist at Stanford University and a professor, about why he thinks homeworking will continue. We spoke to Nick last year about homeworking in the first few months of lockdown. He's since done research into what homeworking will look like after the pandemic, so we'll be asking about that. Then we're talking to Claire McCartney from the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, CIPD, about what employers in the UK are planning as lockdowns ease and how to ensure remote working works for everyone. And finally, another Claire, Claire Carpenter, founder of The Melting Pot, a co-working space in Edinburgh, will be asking Claire about The Melting Pot and why she thinks local co-working spaces are the future of the office. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, I'm going to start this and you're going to think he's wanging on about this again, but bear with me because it's, it's not quite what it seems. You know, I mentioned that I'm now doing for the next few weeks uh, until the back end of May, uh, a radio show about the Beatles and their music and the the joy. And it got a fantastically nice review in The Observer. And I was really pleased. It did. It did. Yeah, that was that was lovely. And it trended on Twitter, although my wife tells me that I shouldn't be mentioning that on the podcast because she says it sounds a little bit desperate. It was trending on Twitter. That is brilliant. Yeah. But my reason to be cheerful is, is adjacent to that. Part of what I'm doing with it is talking to people like little interviews showcasing people who fill the internet with Beatles podcasts and Instagram accounts and just just share their joy of it so for example I recorded an interview earlier this week with a guy called Hugh who runs a Twitter account called Teetles which is just photographs of the Beatles drinking tea that he's collected from across their career. Wow. And I talked to him for about an hour and a half the other night. And then last night, I talked to these two guys, Jason and Stephen, who do a brilliant Beatles podcast called Nothing Is Real. But I sat here and just had this really great conversation about something I'm passionate about for two and a half hours, just sat talking to them because we all love this thing. And the reason I mention it and think of it as a reason to be cheerful is... On this podcast a lot, and all of us generally, think of social media as as being this poison or, or this viper's nest. But this is a way in which I, and I think this is true for so many people across so many different passions and fandoms and interests or, or whatever it is, connect with people you would never meet in real life and, and have these 
connections and, and conversations. And I know this isn't obscure. It's the, it's the biggest band of all time, but the level of detail that I will go into with these guys. And it, it's, it's just, just great. And it's made me feel really positive about the internet for once. That is a brilliant story. And I'm incredibly pleased that, you know, because it was this, we know that you know masses about the Beatles. But I think it's fantastic to find an outlet for it, isn't it? And then to connect to all these other people. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine is sort of, it's got a kind of surface element, and then it's got a sort of slightly more obscure element. Where my mum lives in London, um, about four years ago, or three years ago, I saw Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller, who was the you know famous opera director and so on, Jonathan, Dr Jonathan Miller, sadly died since sitting on a bench and I had a chat with them I was with my kids going to visit my mum and I left the chat and I thought that is a really sort of historic scene I really wish I'd taken a photo but I didn't want to be too sort of you know yeah I do know what you mean yeah yeah. moments anyway then last Sunday and I've thought about this a lot last Sunday I went to visit my mum and who should be sitting on exactly the same bench but Alan Bennett Wow. And I mean, he's not been there ever since, has he? He's not been there ever since, no. And then I had a really nice chat with him, and Justine was with me. I talked to her a lot about this, and she sort of said, oh, why don't we take a photo? And I was with the children, and we take a photo, so we got the photo taken, so I'm really pleased we got the photo taken. Alan Bennett was lovely, and so on. And I've been trying to sort of work out why it is that I, I you know, I think Alan Bennett's great. And, yeah. You know, da, 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 but why do I care so much about that? And I think it's to do with... The, the thought I'd had was not really, was, was obviously I was keen to have the photo, but that for my kids later in life, it would be a great photo to have. Yes. And it sort of, and then it reminded me, this is a long, this is why it's long and convoluted, it reminded me of a story which my father told me, and I've been trying to work out whether this story is true or I've misremembered it. But you see, he did an interview with Bertrand Russell, you know, Bertrand yeah, Russell, yeah. who was the famous sort of, you know, et cetera, political activist, Nobel laureate, et cetera, et cetera. He did an interview in the, like the 1960s with Bertrand Russell and before I was born. And, and Bertrand Russell died in 1970. And I remember him saying to me, and I think this story is right, but I can't be absolutely certain, but it seemed the date seemed to check out, that he said he one of the things that was amazing about that interview was he felt he was reaching back 200 years because John Stuart Mill, the famous philosopher, had dangled the baby Bertrand Russell on his knee. <laughs> and, and, I've, and I've worked out, and I've worked out that the dates do just about match. Uh, John Stuart Mill died a year after Bertrand Russell was born. Um, he died in 1873, and Bertrand Russell was born in 1872, but I suspect that was probably the case. Wow. That... John Stuart Mill dangled Bertrand Russell on his knee in 1872, and my dad was talking to him in 19, <laughs> the 1960s. And it's sort of this thing of essentially you're reaching mm, back like mm. 150 years. It's degrees of separation, but into history as well. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So I, I was trying to work out what, you know, apart from wanting a nice photo with Alan Bennett, I mean, I was chat with him, why I was so keen on this. And I think that's that's the kind of historical roots of it. I've got two words for you for the next time it happens and you don't get the photo. Go on. Madame Two Swords. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we are joined by the man who is the, I would say, the world authority on working from home, now classified as a friend of the podcast. He is professor in the Department of Economics at Stanford University. He is Nick Bloom. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Ed, Jeff, lovely to be back. Thank you. 
Now, look, you were on the show about nine months ago talking about working from home when we were at the right at the beginning, really, as it turns out, of 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 lockdown. I guess I'm sort of interested to know just as a starting point, because you've been working on this area for many years, how your views on this have changed during the course of this pandemic experience. Uh, you know, my views before the pandemic, I was like a fervently in favour of working from home. I loved working from home and I had research showing how productive it was. It's not that I've changed my views. It feels like the world has gone from one side of me to the other. So right now I spend a huge amount of time telling companies like working from home is great. So just to be clear, post pandemic, I'm suggesting that which what most companies are looking at doing actually that we'll be doing it two days a week. But the other three days a week in the office are like important, and that we can't just permanently work from home five days a week, even post zoom in our pajamas. So, so you've sort of, uh, you've not as you say, you've you've stayed where you were, but you feel the world has sort of passed slightly kind of passed you not passed you by but sort of moved from one extreme to the other it used to be because i remember you saying on our first time we interviewed you that working from home was seen as shirking from home all of those stereotypes now you feel like we've people have flipped slightly the opposite way yes definitely you know i get i mean i i I worry about making that claim because you know in politics everyone claims they're the moderate so (laughs) it's kind of like everyone thinks they're in the center from working from home but Certainly in survey data, I've been collecting a lot of survey data in both the US and the UK. It looks like people's views of working from home have become dramatically more positive. So that shirking from home has completely disappeared. Is there anything that has been thrown up in practice that you didn't preempt in the theory of it when when it's happened at scale in the way it has? Um, There's definitely been, you know, it's more than teething issues under COVID with, you know, COVID's really hard because lots of people have kids at home. And, uh, you know, about half the workforce has kids under the age of 18. And then there's another issue about spouses not having enough space with kids, you know, Zoom schooling at home. Isolation. COVID is really hard as well. Because you think normally we'll go out in the evenings on the weekend. So even if you work from home five days a week, you, you're not then trapped in your house. I was going to say one thing that's unexpected to me that since we last spoke, uh, is we've been collecting surveys on how many days a week people want to work from home post-pandemic. And you'd think that that number would be going down because we'd be getting fed up with this, but it turns out that number's going up. So back in May last year, most people said post-pandemic, they want to work from home two days a week, go in the office three. Now that's crept up to they want to work at home three days a week and actually only be in the office too. So on average, we're getting happier and more relaxed and more comfortable with working from home. So that's the one big surprise for me that's been coming up. And you've you've already made reference to this, Nick. You're doing you've been doing extensive survey work with employees, and I think employers maybe too. What and your view is, as you say, that home working will continue post COVID. What what what? Tell us a little bit more about your research and what it's shown. Yeah, so for, you know, many people are probably really wondering about what will happen to them and their companies. So you can think of the UK labour force roughly split into two. So there's about half of people and they're mostly university graduates. They work in the kind of jobs that can be working from home and they are mostly full time working from home right now. It looks like companies, I mean, for a long time, have been saying post COVID, you can come back in the office, but only for three days a week. That's what you hear in the news, by the way, a lot. Working from home will stay forever. It doesn't mean it will stay five days a week forever. And then the other half of the population can't work from home. They're like a lot of, you know, retail manufacturing, healthcare workers, teachers, 
And they have not been working for much now or certainly won't be post-COVID. And when you look at employees and employers, what have people valued about the working from home experience and what have been the downsides? Uh, For employees, uh, the number one is, you know, not commuting. So uh, the average person in the UK commutes about an hour a day. And so, you know, by far the overwhelming thing is people say they don't want to commute. Numbers two and three. Two is, two and three, I can't remember which order, but are basically more minor. I like effectively not having to, you know, get dressed properly and wash, which makes... Yep, that's me. Yep. Ties up with Procter & Gamble's statement that deodorant sales have collapsed. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. I didn't that. know that. That's amazing. I mean, I, I yeah. have had the same roll-on stick on the go, I think, since 2019. <laughs> yes, so there's that. And then the other thing that was hilarious is not having to talk to your work colleagues. So for a lot of people see that as positive. There's a fourth one, of course, which is spending time with like family and friends. But for individuals, the biggie was basically not commuting. And for a lot of people that have this commute from hell you can see why for firms the big issue the primary one is increasing their realizing employees are actually more productive if they're at home for a couple of days a week so to be clear i've talked to so many managers and they say look we want people back in the office for like three days a week because we need that for creativity because you need to be innovative and you also need to keep company culture up but they don't need to be here five days a week and actually it's turning out you know firms are discovering after a year of pandemic Employees are pretty good at home, particularly doing standard tasks, the stuff that they've done before. They're more efficient. The big issue and challenge is why I'm not in favor of five days a week post-pandemic is that's productivity doing the same thing as we always do. The big problem is this like short and long run productivity, short run productivity, the same old, same old, or actually better at home because we're saving that commute time and it's a lot quieter. The problem is in the long run, you want to create new ideas, new products, new processes, That's what it seems like you need to come into the office. What is really striking, and we should talk about it kind of connects to a sensitive issue, is people have really varied preferences over how many days they want to come in. So I mentioned that the average employee now in the UK wants to come in close to three days a week. But if you break this down, you find out slightly less than a quarter of people actually never want to come into to uh, sorry never want to work from home again they tend to be young single living in like small flats in the center of town they're like yeah i want to come back full time there's a roughly another quarter that want to stay working from home forever actually five days a week they tend to be older married with kids and then the remaining half are kind of spread but there's enormous variations in what people want the other divide i've seen is slightly by gender so women have a slightly higher preference to work from home but more strikingly by having young children so people young children really want to work from home more days than those without and this is the issue one issue i should say that's come up a lot with companies do you let people choose so on the one hand you discover that some people want to be at home five days a week and others none you say you know we should let people choose we believe in choice you know people have a good idea but the problem is we've seen in the data repeatedly that if you are working from home say four days a week and your the rest of your team is coming into the office five days a week you're at a massive promotion disadvantage in fact in china we saw people in that situation their rates of promotion halved and the thing that's come up as a bit of an issue is if say women with young kids were to work from home four days a week and young single men came into the office five days a week you can imagine what's going to happen on promotions and you have like a diversity disaster that's a really interesting point i was going to ask this which is 
we've been coping with a situation where, you know, in general, at least across different uh, companies, I think most people have been doing one thing or the other. What's the advice you're giving to companies about how they cope with this new, you know, much more mixed hybrid in many senses reality? In the short run, uh, I would aim to have something that's common for everyone. I totally get that that's not everyone's best choice, but it avoids this nightmare of having, you know, some people in five days a week shooting up the company and others not. Um, and the, the most standard types of plans that I hear is what's often called a 3-2 plan. So you're in the office three days a week, let's say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, you're at home Wednesday, Friday. And, you know, you all, all your social stuff, all your uh, meetings and events and client things are on those Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. They'll be like exhaustingly social. By the end of each one of those days, you're like, oh, I, I don't want to talk to anyone else. And then on the Wednesday and Friday, it's quiet time at home and you do your report writing and analysis. And that's kind of the best of both worlds. In fact, to throw one other number out there in our survey, we asked people in the UK how much equivalent of what of earnings would the perk to work from home two days a week be and the average number was six percent so people really like this so if you're a firm allowing people to work from home two days a week post pandemic is worth about six percent of earnings so you know it, it's not just good for firms but clearly employees you know are very keen on this and when you think about the the the, the two groups which you say is roughly half the people who can some of the time and people who just can't because of the, the the type of jobs they do and remote working not being a possibility. If you then start thinking through the the consequences of that divide, you know, what does that look like? What are the problems and, uh, and in, in what ways can or can't you get around them? I think it is really hard, actually. You basically have two groups. One has had a much worse on average pandemic because they've either had to go into work and face infection risk or they've lost their jobs. If you look at who's lost the jobs, under the pandemic, it's much more likely to be lower educated people because they have to do these face-to-face jobs and those industries have been hit worse. And then you throw on top of that, you're the same group that post-pandemic isn't getting this nice two-day-a-week work-from-home perk. So not surprisingly, uh, it seems pretty, I mean, it is pretty unfair. So yeah, I think I think it's a sensitive issue. It's also, by the way, when I've talked to managers, this has come up a lot in their firms. I remember talking to somebody that uh, was pretty senior in a healthcare company and she said, you know, it's a real issue that I have my execs and scientists that can basically work from home and the frontline workers got to come in every day and they're upset. But then, you know, they're not going to also get this post pandemic. And I don't I don't know how to deal with it. It's hard. We're going to talk. Um, we're going to talk shortly to uh, Claire McCartney from the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. And you know, may, maybe this is more of a question for her. But in, won't this involve if there's there's the type of shift even a, a modest shift wouldn't it involve like companies having to completely change their hr practices root and branch and there'll be loads of cracks that people can fall down that just haven't been thought about there are a bunch of, i mean on that basis my guess is some firms will offer top-up kind of compensation payment for people that cannot work from home two days a week another really fascinating thing that's come up in hr is Going back to this, someone called Marissa Mayer, who is a famous CEO uh, of Yahoo, that back in 2013 banned working from home. It was all over the media. And, you know, it was a big storm and, you know, probably not for the right reason. She wasn't very happy about it. And I actually reached out to her, managed to talk to her about six months ago. And she said, um, 
you know, she said, let me tell you about what happened. Basically, when, when I took over at Yahoo, they'd been through endless CEOs. And so the management was not fantastic. And they were using what she called input-based management, which is basically when you're evaluating someone, you're just looking at what they're doing. So, I, you know, if Jeff, I'm your manager, I'm like watching you. And are you at your desk appear to be typing, looking busy? If you are great, if not, I start to worry about. And she said, that's a real problem for working from home because you can't see what your employees are doing. So she said, look, what we needed to do is switch to output-based management, which is a better way of running things, which is based on performance. So I say, hey, Jeff, I'm going to pay you as long as you get your work done, or your report done, or, you know, whatever you're working on. And you can, if you want to sit in Hawaii-colored shirt and flip-flops in the garden listening you know, to Spotify, you're welcome. But you just have to get it done. And that output-based management works very well under the pandemic. I just let you work from home. So there is a huge implication for HR that we basically need to get our management systems in good shape because otherwise we can't manage people properly working from home. And a lot of firms are realizing that and are beefing up HR because of that right now. Also, I guess labor laws could very easily seem like they belong to a whole different era. So in in, in the Jeffocracy, I mean, I'll be very hands off. I'll, I'll very much leave it to you, Nick. But from a, a policy or legislation point of view, what, what, what do we need to be changing at that level rather than just leaving it to companies and HR departments? He's Secretary of State for Hybrid Working, is that yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, there's a whole raft of things that are going to need changing. There's a lot of stuff on like workplace accidents and compensation uh, I was, you know, yeah, just on two examples, if if I'm working from home and I have, you know, a horrible uh, disaster on my swivelly chair and, you know, break both my legs, it's hard to imagine what it was. I decided to do, you know, do things standing up and I don't realise it's not a good idea to stand on a swivelly chair. Can I sue my employer? In the office, probably yes. At home, who knows? Um, there's other stuff about hours that gets a bit tricky about what your working hours should be, um, in part because... I mentioned for the commute, it's about an hour a day. People working from home, about half of that commute time, they work more on their current job. About half of it, they do their own stuff. But things like minimum wage, do you probably include that? There's a lot of stuff that's, you know, if you're at home and you have a minimum wage per hour, does going to the toilet count? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you can imagine there's a lot of questions like that. In the office, yes, if you go to the toilet in the office, it's part of your working time. So I think this stuff will be thrashed out in the courts over the next few years. Well, look, Nick Bloom, we don't want to intrude on your working from home uh, because you're, you've got some domestic duties you've got to attend to. Um, but we're incredibly grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much. Ed and Jeff, thanks very much for having me. Well, to zoom in specifically on the situation here in the UK, we're going to talk to senior policy advisor. Zoom in. The, uh-huh. zoom in. Oh, no pun intended. Very, just, you're just, you're just naturally. I wish genius. I was quick witted enough to have thought of that. Um, yeah. we're, we're going to speak to uh, senior policy advisor at the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, Claire McCartney. And I mean, what's interesting is we have identified that even by speaking to you, we have in in, in microcosm uh, a, a demonstration of one of the perils of working from home because you don't usually work from home on the day that we're recording this. That's right. I don't normally, but but it's all about two-way flexibility. So I'll be able to make the time up um, and, and, and take some time back for this, which is no problem whatsoever. So t- tell us first off, I mean, just brass tacks, what is the CIPD and, and what do you do? 
Well, we're the professional body for HR and people development. So we champion better work and working lives. Um, We've been setting the the benchmark for excellence in people and organisational development for more than 100 years. In terms of what happens next, I'm just wondering what you're hearing on that um, in in the time you've spent talking to employers. What's the range of um, what's the range of plans that you're hearing from employers? Well, many employers, I think, who might have been really reluctant to enable homeworking prior to the pandemic have really learnt from this period of enforced homeworking that it can actually work pretty well. So what we're hearing from employers is that um, almost half of them are taking steps to enable more home and hybrid working, so a combination of home and workplace working within the next um, six to 12 months. But I think the other thing to think about is two-fifths of employees have not been able to work from home um, at all. And mostly that's because of the nature of their job. So we really need to ensure that they are able to access greater flexibility as well. I wondered if you could just go, you you touched on it there, but if you could go into a bit more detail about what this last year, which is you know, obviously nobody was expecting what what we have very quickly learned about this version of remote working, both benefits and downsides. Yeah, I think, you know, there have been many benefits actually for people. And what's coming through from our research is benefits to well-being. So people not having to, you know, do that daily commute and they're able to use that time in perhaps more beneficial ways for them. And then also the fact that they are experiencing greater flexibility in the hours that they're able to work from home, which is which is really good for their well-being Um, and some unexpected benefits as well. So people saying that, you know, they're able to use new and different collaborations through different IT tools that perhaps they weren't even able to, to do in the office. So that, I think, is all positive. But of course, there are downsides and challenges and so, again, some of those would be to do with well-being, but mental um, well-being in particular, due to people feeling isolated. I think that's particularly the case if you are um, living on your own and working remotely. Um, also, the fact that, you know, as I've said, some jobs are just not suitable um, for remote working. Um, but also difficulties, which I think you've touched on, um, where staff experience, you know, if they don't have a, a, a suitable workspace at home or... Um, they don't have a private area. You know, perhaps some younger employees might be in flat shares, for instance, and that might be quite difficult to, you know, to focus on work. That's interesting because in terms of HR challenges, that that would mean thinking about things that had just never been a consideration in the past, like you know whether somebody lives on their own or not, what what their living environment, which is, is supposed to in some way double up as an office environment there's there's no framework for doing that how 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 do you even start to grapple with it well i mean i think it's interesting actually i think maybe employers for the first time really understanding their employees personal circumstances you know so what their workspace is like at home but also whether they have any vulnerable members of staff you know member members of their family living with them um you know whether they have any caring responsibilities so i think you know employers have really got to know those details and are trying to support employees on an individual basis as a consequence of that which i think is a good thing and let's talk about the other thing um that that we mentioned the the fact that two-fifths of the the workforce haven't been able to remote work when you talk about thinking about more flexibility for those people what what do you mean given that these are by and large jobs that 
can't be done remotely. Yeah, so we're thinking about flexibility in hours, um, not just flexibility in location. So, you know, having access to things like uh, compressed hours or um, job shares or term time working, those sorts of things, staggered start and finish times, which could be really beneficial for um, employees, you know, work-life balance and well-being, um, and could also be beneficial for organisations as well in terms of making them more agile and responsive, um, longer customer hours potentially. So those are the sorts of things we're thinking about. So the big lesson of this crisis has been around homeworking, but it hasn't so much been, at least from an employer point of view, around the flexibility of hours, term times and all of those issues. I think that's right. So it's almost learning from the fact that employers have been much more able to be flexible around location. So let's think about what more we can do in terms of hours. And what's your advice to employers about how they go from here? I mean, as they get back to people coming back into the office, CIPD, I know, works closely with employers just what, what's your sort of advice to them about how they take things forward? I think they need to talk to their employees if they haven't done so already to find out what their preferences are. If they're able to allow remote working and hybrid working, then they need to think about how they're going to best use their office um, space. So they might think about kind of collaborative um, team-based thinking in the physical workspace, but more um, focused work from home. I think they also need to... Um, design their working practices to suit all locations so it, it suits home workers and it also suits um, people who are in the physical workspace but thinking about how what can we do to aid knowledge sharing and teamwork which can often be a challenge when people are working remotely and then um, for us it's so important to train and support your line managers so they know how to manage people inclusively um, so for us that would be regular one-to-one conversations talking about work but also well-being issues it would be making sure that you are um, including people um, no matter where they're located and that everyone feels that they have a voice. Um, And then finally, it would be around having a spotlight on development and career progression opportunities for all. So making sure that that's available for your um, people in the physical workspace, but also your remote workers. Um, I think that would be a real priority. And does does this come from businesses or does it need a whole bunch of regulation and, and, and legislation? Well, I think most of this is good people management practices. Um, so it's about, you know, sharing those. And that's certainly what we're trying to do. We have, you know, guidance around new guidance that we've just put out around hybrid working. We've got new research and practical case studies coming out to really support organisations. But most of it should be around the principles of good people management. We've got a sort of, uh, how would I put it? We we tend to idolise quite a lot Scandinavia on this podcast. And I know Finland has passed a law recently that not only allows people, I think, to sort of vary their work start and end times by four hours, but also to decide where they want to spend 50%, yes. 50% of their working week, that they, they have the choice themselves. What do you think about that sort of, is that a kind of, it might be a long way off, but is that a good kind of place for us to aim for, the gold standard? I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think it probably is a bit um, further away. I think our more immediate call, and we've got a campaign at the CIPD called Flex from First, where we'd really like to see that right to request flexible working becoming a day one right rather than 
um, employees having to have been in service for 26 weeks. I, mean, I think we think that will really open up the conversation at a much earlier point and hopefully um, provide uh, more people with opportunities around flexibility. And just to underline this point, Claire, because of the nature of your organisation, you believe firmly, presumably, that this is not just the right thing to do for employees, but can be good for businesses as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's a really strong business case around flexible working in terms of attracting and recruiting talent, supporting inclusion and diversity. You know, it's there's quite a compelling business case. So absolutely, it's the right thing for um, employees, but there are real benefits um, for um, organisations as well. And can I ask you about one other question, which is about uh, co-working spaces? Um, is, is that part of the solution? You know, the, the notion that, you know, the office might be a long way away uh, and you might not want to commute to the office every day, but, but could co-working spaces be part of the answer here? I think they could. And, you know, particularly for those people we've said that don't have a suitable workspace, um, don't have privacy. Um, also, you know, to say for some people working from home isn't always the safest option either. So, you know, I think that could certainly be an opportunity for organisations to explore. And, you know, that you still get the kind of the social interactions from doing um, from doing that. And also the opportunity to, to meet people from various different businesses, which could be really beneficial. Just last question. We've obviously been through a terrible, grim time as a as a country. Are you optimistic that we're going to learn that that, that we can learn the right lessons of this? That 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 businesses and work well, workers are obviously seem up for it, but that there is potential here for us to learn some lessons. I think so. You know, I think organisations are are becoming more compassionate. You know, because of the the difficulties that we've all been experiencing and the understanding that they have of employees' um, circumstances. And I think it's really promising um, the number of organisations that are doing more around home working and remote working. And if they can offer the same around flexible working, then I think we'll be at a really um, strong place. Flexible hours would be in a great place going forward. Well, look, Claire McCartney, it's an incredibly important subject and, and you've been really enlightening on it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. To talk now about some of the solutions we might have to the challenges we face as we emerge from lockdown, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Claire Carpenter, who is a social entrepreneur and founder of The Melting Pot, which was one of the world's first co-working spaces when it was founded in 2007. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, if you would, the story behind The Melting Pot, why you decided to set it up in 2007. Basically, I'd worked in the third sector. We were under-resourced, we distributed. You know, this was pre pre Google and pre lots of uh, connectivity platforms. And there's good people trying to make good stuff happen, but very dispersed, very low resource. Um, so I wanted to create a resource base that enabled people to come together, to work, to connect to learn from each other, to share with each other and to raise our profile. And where very practically, you didn't have to buy five days a week of a, of a desk or uh, five years of, a, of an office space where we could disrupt the commercial real estate model and share, share space, share facilities, share tools and bring people together. Because let's face it, people are better when they're, when they're connected. And we know that. And what kinds of things do the people who use your co-working space do there? Well, they do all sorts of things. So we work with 
people who are solopreneurs, they're in startup stage or they've been actually working for the last 15 years on their own business. There could be SMEs, there'd be for-profits, non-profits. So people are involved in campaigning, advocacy. They might be influencing policy, education initiatives. They may offer business development services or, uh, yeah, services to business of different types. Could be green engineering, tech solutions. There's all sorts. I'm going to have forgotten. There's a, there's 160 odd members. They do a wide range of things. And obviously we are at a massive moment of transition. People have seen during this crisis, despite its absolute grimness, that working from home is more of an option than perhaps they realized. Talk to us just at the level of principle about how you, what your vision is of how co-working spaces like yours can be part of the sort of solutions that we're looking for as we emerge into this new world and recognize we don't just want to go back to what we had before. Yeah, so co-working hubs are really a tool to having your toolkit as an employer or as an entrepreneur. You know, it's all about having the right environment, the right tools for the job. And you'd, you'd invest in a computer and a good computer technology. And I would suggest that people think about investing in the right type of workplace for their needs. And different people's needs within your team are going to vary. So people have experienced lockdown differently. They've got different um experiences of working from home for some people it's a nightmare for other people they've really enjoyed it and would love that flexibility to continue so as we move out of lockdown I'd encourage people to think about putting a co-working hub into the toolbox and giving their staff or their their colleagues the opportunity to try different places out co-working hubs can provide community they provide tools they provide structure. Lots of people actually really love the idea of going to work and then turning the computer off and going home. The, the break between sitting at a computer, getting a cup of tea and being have, able to have a little chat with somebody allows the brain to defrag, you know, allows you to finish one task and maybe even be you know, rewarded by going and getting a cup of tea and a little chat with somebody. All of these things are actually good for not just our cognitive ability, but it's also... Uh, yeah, reward, motivation, contact time. We're social creatures and workplaces are not just about the desk and the Wi-Fi and the coffee. They're about the interactions that we can have. And and from your experience, which is now more than obviously more than a decade, mm. do you find that so, – so I think a lot of people would would think, yes, I can see why working from home, you'd miss out on some of the benefits of being with the co-workers from your company mm-hmm. um, at work. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about how sharing a co-working space with people from other organisations can have some of the – they're obviously not exactly the same benefits as being with people from your own company or organisation, mm-hmm. but talk to us a little bit about that because it's a, it's a sort of different way of thinking about it, isn't it? There's There's – you kind of home working, there's working in your office, and then there's co-working spaces which are which offer something different. Absolutely. Well, co-working hubs can provide a space for your whole team to be in, but they can also uh, give you access to a wider network of people. So, for instance, if you're in a yeah, an IT company, for instance, uh, a small startup, you might not have access to uh, HR advice or finance advice. But somebody in the network of the co-working hub may well have that experience that you want to draw upon. 
So if you're only working in your company HQ, the, the lens that you view the world is, go is going to be very much there. And I think the wonderful opportunity that co-working hubs provide is diversifying networks, diversifying contacts. And a great co-working hub is actually about the culture that's in there, the connectivity, the relationships. It is about the community as well as the coffee and the Wi-Fi. I'm really interested to hear about what your vision of the future is in terms of is it is it one thing or another? I know that for some people, just because of their physical uh, surroundings, co-working is is you know the only thing that works other than going into a workplace. But then I guess there are some people who just want somewhere to go. They want the this delineation between home and work. What what do you think the mix is? So the industry is talking about a hybrid model, which is basically working from home, working from a hub, a neighborhood hub, and working from your company HQ. And that blended approach, the hybrid model, allows for distributed workforce in distributed workplaces, and variety is the spice of life. And can I ask you about the last 12 months, you know, just in terms of the melting pot, what, how have you had to adapt mm -hmm. and how has that shaped your plans for you know, the next five, 10 years? After 13 years of running our co-working hub right in the centre of Edinburgh, six months into lockdown, we had to give that space up. And, you know, that was hard. That's like enforced leaving your home because of, yeah, because of a change in business circumstance that you weren't anticipating. So... We tried to open again in the summer. We closed after, during the first lockdown, opened up in the summer. People wanted to come back in, but they also want, didn't want to come back in, not enough to be viable anyway, to be sustainable. We've tried to open bigger premises in Edinburgh for years and been unable to because of the market economics of Edinburgh and, uh, and our you know, size of our charity. So I've been absolutely delighted that we've managed to not only rescue our organisation, having taken it, cast it adrift from its premises, but actually do what we've tried to do for years, which is scale it. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be opening brand new city centre premises through a fantastic partnership with another charitable organisation called Foundation Scotland. We've got bigger premises, they're better premises, they're more beautifully fitted out, and we did our research, we investigated what the future of the office needs to look like. So, for instance, there'll be hot offices, not just hot, hot desks. Uh, there'll be Zoom rooms because, let's face it, people do shout when they talk to a computer. And beyond the first physical space, I think it's actually the opportunity is about, you've heard of the whole 20-minute neighbourhood and so it's about the ideal commute. Nobody wants to commute for 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. It's bloody ridiculous. So what is the ideal commute? And people are very happy with something like 20 minutes, even 30 minutes, anything more than that. You're really actually entering a different district. So I think the future of co-working will be about a locality model. We've been helping customers all over the world to create co-working hubs through a service called the Co-working Accelerator. And we will continue to do that. Local co-working will be on the rise. The question is whether that is a community-developed develop, and community-focused hub or whether it's uh, the equivalent of a big supermarket going in and doing it. And there'll be a place for both. Depends how fast people move. Claire Carpenter, thank you so much. Good luck with all those plans. It sounds uh, incredibly exciting. Thanks so much for uh, talking to us about the melting pot. Well, what did you think as somebody who works from home? Well, I'll tell you what I thought was very interesting. 
that behind not having to commute, the top two reasons were not having to dress and wash yourself and not having to interact with other people. It made me feel less alone. It made me think that there are people like me out there. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because the experience we've had over the past 12 months of homeworking is something that has been thrust upon people through terrible circumstances. In that, there is a, a, a taste of the possibility that it offers, but this version of it probably isn't that similar uh, to, to what it would be in a, in a normal environment. And I feel that there's a lot of protection that people need and a lot of considerations uh, around people in the workplace that would need to be implemented, whether that's by HR departments or whether it's in policy. It, it feels like a, a big job. It doesn't feel like there's something on the shelf ready to go. It's really interesting that, isn't it? You, you, the thing I was feeling was was thinking it's it's a classic case where you need sort of public policy because there are all these inequalities going to be thrown up. You know, the inequalities between people who can work from home and people who just can't because of their job. The inequalities between people who've got the space at home to work from home and those who can't. The inequalities between those who choose to work from home and though because they've got caring responsibilities, other things, and those who don't, and whether the people who don't are going to somehow get an advantage. So, so it's like there are all we're we're about to enter this period of quite big change and flux, I think, and it and it sort of feels like we might be quite unprepared for it. Do, do, do you know what I mean? We might be quite unprepared for the for the sort of change it's going to bring. There's a real blurring of what that would mean for your privacy in terms of your employer as well because previously it's no business of your employer whether you're single or you live on your own or yeah. not but yeah i think it you know how do you incorporate that into policy in in a way that where it feels there there is some divide between your personal life and and your home life and and yet there is something really interesting that's come through which is you know yes working from home is kind of be kind of easier for some people than others and impossible for others. And yes, you know, obviously by its nature, working from home depends on your home circumstances as to the kind of experience it is. But yet there is obviously a will right across the age range, right across circumstances for people to be able to have that kind of mix. I mean, it feels like most people are somewhere in the mix you know, in in wanting a mix of both. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. 
Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As ever, we would love to hear from you. Uh, We always enjoy reading the email that we receive. We enjoy your ideas for episodes. We enjoy your thoughts on episodes that we broadcast. We really want to know what your thoughts are on Ed's ideas for cheerful fellowship. We really love praise we suppress all forms of criticism which isn't true as you, as you will hear uh, <laughs> shortly uh, but please you, you go to the website get in touch with us it's cheerfulpodcast.com and you can contact us through that this comes from ellie in edinburgh who says i really love the parks and rec episode something that jumped out at me during lockdown is that many parks only have a couple of entrances and people who live next to them are often excluded from them by large fences and have to walk a long way to entrances a campaign to open more entrances would make a big difference to many people we met an old lady walking along the road next to a beautiful green park she couldn't walk far enough to get to the entrance and walk around it despite living next to the far end so her daily walks were on the road besides the park wall um that's interesting isn't it and, you know yeah, uh, yeah, when yeah. somebody points that out that that seems really obvious really and, good point yeah this one is called cheerful about teachers that's the title and it's from andrew and he says, and this was last week's episode where I talked about my reason to be cheerful about the teacher's commitment, and he thinks I slightly missed the point, and I think he's right. Uh, he says this, teachers sending emails through the night is not a reason to be cheerful. It's a sign of an exploited workforce. My wife has gone part-time four days a week as an English teacher, but still works every day of the week, including weekends, to fit in the marketing preparation, and she regularly works past midnight. In other words, the demands have become so intolerable that she took a pay cut just to take some pressure off, and not even that worked. She feels she has no choice to work all these hours to the level of expectations from parents, management, and even colleagues. Rather than marvel at the commitment of people like this, let's just agree it's unacceptable that anyone is made to feel this is necessary. Let's make a concerted effort to adjust everyone's expectations and or fund schools at a level where they can employ more staff so that the current expectations are achievable without actually destroying people's lives. Thanks for the podcast. Please keep it up. Let Fair me tell enough, you, really. I, I think that was my fault more than yours. And... I, I, I agree with everything he says. I think what I was thinking of more was there has, I think, been some quite nasty criticism of teachers in the media through parts of the pandemic. And I've, I've, 
I think I, the place I was coming from when I was saying it was just to, to hope that any teachers listening to it do feel appreciated by you know, the the majority of people, despite you know some some loud voices suggesting otherwise. But yeah, the, the, no, nobody's job should eat their life like that, and uh, you know teaching is difficult at the best of times without that. So I'm sorry if that's how it came across, and thank you for uh, for pulling us up on it. Um, but that, that, that it's not now open season for people to criticise us. <laughs> like my self-esteem isn't great at the moment anyway and I, I don't need that will riley says i've been listening to podcasts for years i've found it informative and engaging but i think here lies the problem though i'm more informed about the injustices of our society but pessimistic about any real change to fix it. Each week, another concern is added. And although it's imperative to know these things, I feel more and more helpless. The Jeffocracy question normally results in a really sensible and achievable answer, but it can only be put in place by our government. And this is why I think it'd be brilliant to have a new question in in addition to the Jeffocracy one, which is to ask the experts what listeners can do about it right now. I'm sure you have a sizable listener base and each week you could have a wave of good intentions that might spread further out and help change things. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I do sometimes think like we're, 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 we've got a lot of building blocks for people here. Um, but in terms of you know, being able to do something beyond vote in an election. That's a, a great idea, don't you think? It is a good idea. We failed to implement it this week. But I think it's true, isn't it? We should try and do that. Mm. What's the sort of activist version of the Jeffocracy? Yes. A Jeff a Jeffivist, you know. I'm I'm trying to think I'm trying to do some kind of portmanteau of Jeff and Citizen. It's really not coming to me. Mm. Joel's yawning, so I think we should move on. Uh, this, uh, uh, right, this comes from Anthony Cox. Uh, he says this, there have been several references to Ed Miliband's, that's me, use of outdated units, uh, to Ed Miliband being outdated, uh, Ed Miliband's use of outdated units such as centigrade instead of Celsius. While reading, reading a story written in the 1940s, there was the word milliard. I had to check what it meant. It seems like it is a thousand million, oh. what the Americans call a billion. Maybe you could start using it as it overcomes the similar sounds of the words million and billion. Just a thought. Thanks for a consistently excellent podcast. Regards, Tony Cox. Now, hang on a minute. When he says what the Americans call a billion, I mean, that's what we call a billion as well, isn't it? I think so. But I think there is a weird thing here, which is that I think when I was growing up, wasn't it? A billion, a million, million. Yes, or yes. I, I think that's that. what he's getting at. But over time, it's 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 become a, a thousand million. Well, when did that change? I don't know, but... Um... You know, we wouldn't have all these billionaires uh, causing the world's problems if it was a million million, would we? No. But, Ed, is, isn't the bigger question, uh, would you like to see the milliard brought back with you as the face of it? What do you mean brought back? Oh, I see the word brought back. Mm. The milliard. Oh, I see. Mm. And now I get it. Mm. Sorry. I just, I only just clocked this. It's also what you call your back garden. Very good. Look, I'm available to be the face of a number. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, we're in the outro. We are. We've barely touched upon your health kick this week. What, what's going on with the Iron Man challenge? Nothing. It's not going well. That 10K was just, I'd so exceeded my wildest expectations. It's just hard to. I think you just need to rewild your expectations then. What does that mean? 
Well, if if 10k was beyond your wildest expectations, ah. now that is that now now that that's your new ceiling for achievable. What's the next? You know, what's what's wild? What's the next level of wild? Well, I was ridiculous because I was already saying afterwards to Justine, oh, maybe I'll do a marathon. She said, well, maybe try and start with a half marathon. <laughs> I think I've got ideas about my station. Basically, I think we should move on. Really. <laughs> Well, should we thank our guests then? Yeah, I'd like to thank Nick Bloom and the Clares, Claire McCartney and Claire Carpenter. Emma Caution produces our podcast. The uh, the research and the guests are unearthed by Joel Pierce with backup from Jack Jeffrey and Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Hello to our good friends at Left Foot Forward. You should subscribe to uh, to their newsletter as well as ours. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dents. And the artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been available in all good bookshops. He's been available at all good bus stops. (laughs) These have been reasons to be cheerful. Thank you.